You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And we will read together verse 59 through the end of the chapter, 59 through 71 of John chapter 6. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And that, of course, refers to the entire sermon, which began back in verse 26. This discourse was taught in Capernaum, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Our Father, our desire is that in looking at your word and studying your word, that we may not be hearers only, but that we may be doers of your word. And that, O Spirit of God, you would be our teacher, that you would instruct us and teach us in your word. Help us to appreciate Christ. Help us to see in your word what we are not. And then we pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we might be what you desire us to be. And that we might also see in your word our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be uh, convinced again of how great he is, how marvelous is his character and his nature, and that you would be glorified through our time here. We pray and commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, whenever the gospel is preached, there it is usually met with one of four different responses. There's some overlap to these, so please don't think in terms of hard and fast categories. But usually when the gospel is preached, people who hear it, unbelievers, will respond in one of four ways. First, open hostility. They will hate the message and they will hate the messenger and they will respond with a very hostile attitude and and hatred for that person. And you see this, of course, we saw it back in John 5 with Jesus and the hostile Pharisees in John 5 and his message there. Uh, we see it in the preaching with the preaching of John and Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. The Jews and sometimes even the Gentiles were hostile to the message. And in spite of everything that those men did and their gracious spirit and their gracious demeanor, uh, they were met with open hostility. A second possible response is apathy. Some people, after hearing the message of the gospel, remain unconvinced and unconverted, and they simply don't care. They're not interested in the truth. They don't see how the truth applies to them. Uh, they think that that is good for you and maybe not good for them, and so they just don't care, or they just remain unconvinced of it. They think it's a nice sentiment, a nice idea, a nice message, but for you, not for them. And so they're just outward apathy. This is the most of the time the response that you get in North America because of our postmodern culture. 
We preach the gospel at an Awana event, and we have all the parents who are here or over at the school, and we get up and we present the gospel, and you can tell that they sit there and they listen, and they don't drag you outside and stone you afterwards. They're not that type of hostility. They're not calling for your blood. They're not trying to put you in prison, but they're apathetic. They just don't care. They remain unconvinced and remain unconverted. A third possible response is a fake faith. An, an ingenu- insincere, ungenuine faith. A faith that simply comes to Christ because He invites them to Him and they think that by coming to Christ they can get what they want. Some, something for themselves. They come with insincere motives. They come seeking selfish things and that's what they want. That's what they think Christ offers to them. And so they come and they attach themselves outwardly in a very shallow manner to Christ and they hang around with Him and with His people just so long as the demands do not get to be too demanding. And the fourth, and by the way, that is the response of the crowd in John 6. They saw the signs and they followed him because of the signs. We saw it in John chapter 2. Many believed on him because of the signs in John chapter 2, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them. And then there is the fourth possible response, and that is genuine, true, real, eternal, persevering, saving faith. The faith that embraces Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for their sin, repents, turns from that sin, and it takes Him and all that He has said and all that He is for themselves. There is a fine line between false faith and true faith. And that line is sometimes hard to discern. I I can't, looking out here over this crowd, discern, just in an outward sense, who has true faith and who has false faith. There are some of you who are sitting here this morning who might be genuine, true believers, and yet you are not growing in your faith or you're not walking with the Lord as you should be, and so you give all the outward signs of having a false faith. There are others here who could have a very false faith. You think you're a Christian, you profess to know Christ, you come here and you hang out, and everybody outwardly thinks that you're a true believer, and yet you are a false believer. And when the demands of Christ get too steep, you will turn and you will walk away. Jesus has presented in John chapter 6 a gospel message in every sense of the word. He has confronted this crowd in Capernaum with their sin, with their unbelief, with their rebellion, with their hardness of heart. He has shown them that they have no life apart from him. And then he has presented himself as the only sacrifice, the only remedy for their spiritual need. And he has told them that their mere attachment to him outwardly is not enough. In fact, they must be willing to do something. And he uses a graphic term, eat his flesh and drink his blood, which simply means embrace him as the sacrifice for their sin. And he has told them that he is going to give his flesh for the life of the world and that the only way to come to God and to have life is by repenting of their sin and trusting in him and to him alone. And then he has called upon them to believe that word, that gospel, and to come to him to have life. And in spite of all of those invitations, and in spite of all of that truth, and all of the promises that he has offered to this crowd, there are many in the crowd who remained in unbelief. They would not repent, they would not believe, they would not trust him, they would not embrace him, and in fact they found his message very offensive. Now you can well imagine after a message like that what the response of the crowd is going to be. In fact, if you were reading John chapter 6 for the very first time and you've read through everything that we've covered so far and you get all the way down to verse 60, you can almost predict the response of the crowd. See, back in verse 41, they grumbled at him. They were complaining. In verse 52, that grumbling sort of gets ratcheted up to an argument about him. 
And Jesus, all the time that the response of the crowd has become gradually more and more hostile, He has not mollified them. He has not softened His message. He's not turned away from it whatsoever. In fact, He is, He keeps hammering at this central theme. And now you get to the end of the sermon, you say, well, there's only really one of two possible responses. Either belief or unbelief. And He has really addressed the entire message at the crowd to display or to, to, to reveal to them the falseness of their faith. That it's not a genuine true faith. They really are not interested in Him him for who He is. They want the benefits. They've come to Him for the food. They've come to Him because they saw the signs and the miracles. They want what He can offer. And Jesus has laid bare their motives. And now they have two possible responses. They can either repent of their sin and believe upon Him and embrace Him and follow Him and love Him and submit to Him and be saved. Or they can turn and walk away. And what do they do? Verse 66, they turn and they walked away. John chapter 6, this whole passage has really been the story of, of what well, we call a tale of two cities, I guess, to, coin, to borrow a coin phrase. It is the tale, really, of two miracles to two groups of people and two different responses. You remember that? The beginning of the chapter, I told you that. Two miracles to two different groups of people with two different responses. The first miracle was the feeding of the multitude to the multitude, and the, their response is that they turn and walk away from his teaching. Then there is another miracle, and that is the walking on water, which was done to the disciples, the twelve, and their response was believing upon him, and entrusting themselves to Him. Two miracles, two different groups of people, and two different responses. And right down the middle of those two groups of people is this sermon in John 6, the Bread of Life discourse, where Jesus draws a very sharp line and says you're either on one side of this or you're on the other side of this. And so today now we are beginning at the end of His sermon, beginning in verse 60, we're looking at these two different responses. We're going to look today at the response of the crowd. There's the response of the crowd in verses 60 to 66, and then there is the response of the disciples... The twelve, we'll call them the twelve because he uses the term disciples, you're going to see in a different sense. There's the response of the twelve in verses 66 through 71. So these two groups of people who saw the two miracles and have heard the same sermon are now going to give two different responses to this truth. One group will embrace him, one group will turn and they will walk away. So let's dive in at verse 60. You see verse 59 is really just an indicator that he was in the synagogue at Capernaum. It tells us, uh, when this happened, likely during the day, during the morning or daytime hours when the, the, the Jews were gathered in the synagogue. So there are, hot, there are Jewish leaders there. There are Pharisees there in the synagogue. There is the multitude that saw him multiply bread and fish the previous day. They are there in the synagogue. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And when you read the word disciples there, don't think in terms of the twelve. Peter, John, Andrew, Bartimaeus, Judas, that's not the, what the word uh, disciples in verse 60 means. The word disciple there is actually a reference to the entire crowd. And you can see that as you look at the broader context, there's a distinction made between these people called the disciples and the actual 12. Do you see that distinction in verse 66? As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's the same group of, spoken of in verse 60 when it says many of his disciples. But look at verse 66. They withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12. This is a different group. There is the disciples and there is the twelve. The word disciple, mathetes in the Greek, simply means somebody who attaches themselves to a teacher in order to learn from them or to follow them. The word doesn't necessarily have anything to do with indicating the disciples' level of commitment or their interest or their sincerity. It simply means somebody who attaches themselves outwardly to a teacher in order to learn from them. This group, is the group that's spoken of as disciples, is the group that saw him multiply the bread and fish. This is the multitude. 
These are followers. These are people who have outwardly attached themselves to Jesus. It's different from the twelve, and you even see a distinction between the twelve and the disciples made in verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. See, there's a distinction between the disciples and the twelve. So in this context, when we read the disciples were grumbling, don't think Peter, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. That's not the disciples that he's speaking of. He's speaking of the multitude. The multitude is grumbling. That is distinct from the twelve. That's sort of John's way of showing us these two groups. There is the multitude and there is the twelve. What was the response of the, the multitude? They grumbled. They grumbled. They were complaining back in verse 41. They were arguing in verse 52. And now in verse 60, they are grumbling again. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It's a difficult statement. The word difficult there means rough. It means raw. It means stiff. It means withered. It's used figuratively in Scripture to describe something that is harsh or something that is unappealing or unacceptable. And that's how it's used here. This is, they said an unacceptable statement. Who can listen to it? Now, what statement are they referring to? Are they referring to Jesus' entire sermon? Or are they referring to the statement that had to do with eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Now, some people say they're referring to the entire sermon. In one sense, that could very well be true because there's plenty there to offend, right? They would be offended by the thought that they were not given by the Father to the Son. They would be offended by the thought that they could not come to the Son unless the Father drew them. It would be offensive for them to hear that they have no life in themselves. It would be offensive for them to be told that they are not going to be raised up on the last day. It would be offensive for them to be told that their eternal destiny hinges on what they do with this one man who is standing before them. That would be offensive. But I lean toward the idea that what Jesus is saying in verse 60 and 61, what they are, what they were offended at, this difficult statement, is the part about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. That was an offensive statement. Because with that statement, Jesus has said to them, you must take me and receive me and believe upon me, and if you do not, you will not have eternal life. And they said to him, this statement is too difficult. It's unacceptable. It's too harsh. It's unappealing. We don't want anything to do with it. Did they understand what Jesus said, by the way? Did they understand what he was saying, the whole sermon? Did they understand it? They understood it. See, the problem was not that they didn't understand it. The problem was with what they did understand. They understood what he was saying, and they said, we can't, we don't want that. When they got what he was saying, they said to themselves, this is too harsh. This is unacceptable. The problem was not that they did not comprehend it. It's that they would not accept it. They would not embrace it. They understood full well his demands, but his demands were too demanding, and they didn't want anything to do with his demands or the man who was making those demands. So they respond the way many people in the history of the church have responded, and that is with a shallow faith. John MacArthur, describing this crowd, says this, their reaction is typical of false disciples. As long as they perceive Jesus to be a source of healing, free food, and deliverance from enemy oppression, the self-serving disciples flock to him. But when he demanded that they acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and commit themselves to him as the only source of salvation, they became offended and left. Like countless other false disciples throughout the history of the church, they followed Jesus for what they thought they could get from him. End quote. That is this group of people. When he laid out his demands, when he laid out his demands, they said, unacceptable. We do not agree to your terms. We want, we'll take you, but we will take you on our terms. We want the food. We want you to be king. We want you to provide for us. We want a welfare state. We do not want to bow the knee 
We do not want to embrace you as you are. And certainly we are offended by the thought that our eternal destiny hinges upon what we do with you. We are not cut off from life. We have life in ourselves. We have a relationship with the Father. We are content with that. We are happy with that. We reject your demands. That's their response. Who can listen to this? This is unacceptable. They didn't want him. Look at the next verse. Verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, now remember, his disciples here is not a reference to the twelve. That's a different group. His disciples are this multitude who have attached themselves outwardly to him. They said to him, uh, he said to them, sorry, does this cause you to stumble? Now verse 62 and verse 63 are two of the most difficult verses in this chapter, if not the entire Gospel of John, to interpret. They have been interpreted or understood in a number of different ways, and I will confess to you that I have no confidence at all that I'm going to add a great deal of light to understanding what these verses mean, or that I'm going to be able to clear up the mist that has uh, existed around them for the last 2,000 years. But we'll do our best to work our way through them. There is a way, I think, of understanding the verses that sort of fits the context and the argument that Jesus is making. So let's, let's sort of dive in, and we'll work our way through it. Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now here's the question. What does Jesus mean by that? What's the argument that he's presenting? Does this offend you? The words that I've said about your eternal destiny hinging upon what you do with me, is that offensive to you? Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What does he mean by that? You can understand it one of two ways, and you can jump in either one of these camps if you want, because both of them would work with the context. First, it could be that what Jesus is saying is this. If what I have said about coming down from heaven as the bread of life causes you to stumble and offends you, would it convince you if you saw me ascend back into heaven from whence I came? In other words, it offends you or you reject. It's a cause of your unbelief that I have made these claims to you. I've come down out of heaven. What if I go back up into heaven? What if you were to see me ascend from here back to my throne where I came from? Would that convince you that what I have said is true? That might be what Jesus means by that. By the way, what is the answer to that question? Would it convince them if they were to see him ascend from earth to heaven? Would that convince them? It wouldn't. Why? Because the problem or the root of unbelief has nothing to do with the lack of evidence. It is a love for darkness. Every single time. No exception. If he had opened up the clouds of heaven and ascended from there and sat down at the right hand of the Father, they would have remained unconvinced. They were unconvinced by his resurrection, and the proof was overwhelming. The evidence was overwhelming. The eyewitness testimony was overwhelming. They are unconvinced by his miracles. They are unconvinced by his teaching. There is nothing that he could have done which would convince their heart, because the issue is never a lack of evidence. It is always a love for darkness. And because they did not want to turn from their sin and embrace him, they didn't want to divorce themselves from their iniquity, they would reject him. So it might be that that's what Jesus is saying. It might be that he's just simply laying bare the fact that, look, it wouldn't even matter if I ascended from here to there, you still would not believe in me. If you think this offends you, would you believe if I were to ascend to heaven? And the answer in each of their heads is no. That wouldn't be enough. He is making them face the reality that there is no sign he could give which would be evidence enough to overcome their unbelief. Why? Because they, as we're going to see in verse 65, they cannot come to him unless the Father who sent them draws them. No amount of evidence will overcome that unbelief. No amount. Well, there's a second way of understanding it. Some people think that 
His reference to the ascension is actually sort of shorthand, theological shorthand, for a reference to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Because all three of them, boom, 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 happen just like that. So to speak of the one really is to speak of all three of them as sort of that crowning, uh, humbling, exalting, and ascending event at the end of his earthly ministry. So some people would say that his reference to the ascension is really a reference to all three of those, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, and that what Jesus is saying is this. Does it offend you that I speak to you about blood and the offering of a sacrifice? If that offends you, how much more when I am executed? How much more when you see the Son of Man lifted up on a cross? Because what was most offensive to the Jews about the message of the gospel was the notion that their Messiah could be cursed of God and hung on a tree. That was offensive. And so it might be that what Jesus means by that is, if it offends you to hear me speak of my sacrifice, wait until you see your Messiah hanging on a cross. That will really offend you. If you're offended by this, the description of it, you're going to be offended by the actual event itself which is my crucifixion, my resurrection, and my ascension to the right hand of the Father. Either one of those would work with the context, so you can pick which one of those you think fits. I kind of lean toward the first. I think that what Jesus is doing is laying bare the unbelief of their hearts. That fits with the context. It fits with his whole demeanor toward the entire crowd and their shallow unbelief. Verse 63 is no easier to interpret. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. Now it's the Spirit who gives life. Now that, with that reference to the Holy Spirit, and it is a reference to the Holy Spirit, Jesus has now mentioned all three persons of the Trinity. You realize that? He's talked about the Father's role in salvation. The Father has given to him a people. He has talked about his role in salvation. He is going to offer his flesh as a sacrifice for the life of the world. And now he addresses the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation, which is the Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit must be the one to give life. If you are sitting here this morning and you are saved, It is because and only because the Spirit of God has regenerated you and given you new life and a new heart because you are without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, dead in your trespasses and sins and unable to change that condition. So if you have life, it is because the Spirit has given you life. And that's what Jesus is saying. The flesh profits you nothing. It is the Spirit of God who must give you life. There's nothing in your flesh. There's no decision that you can make. There's nothing that you can will. There's nothing that you can do. There's no effort that you can exert which will bring you life. It's the Spirit who must give life. And apart from the Spirit of God, your flesh can profit you nothing. That is, man, in his own sinfulness, in his sinful flesh, left to himself, has nothing but the flesh. Nothing but the flesh. Man, apart from the Spirit of God, has nothing but flesh to operate on and in. And that flesh can bring no profit whatsoever. That flesh cannot regenerate. That flesh cannot justify. The flesh cannot save. The flesh cannot sanctify us. The flesh cannot glorify us. The flesh cannot do anything pleasing to God whatsoever. So it's the Spirit who must give life. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, right? You must be born again by the Spirit of God. And it's not according to the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not the will of man. It's not the will of the flesh that brings salvation. It is the Spirit of God and only the Spirit of God. The Spirit gives life and the flesh profits nothing. And Jesus is simply here saying, I will give you life, and I will do it through the agency of the Holy Spirit, because your flesh, you and yourself, cannot do it. You cannot gain for yourself eternal life. So if you're rejecting me, and you're not believing on me, you are putting yourself in a category and in a place where you have nothing but the flesh to operate in, and there's no profit to that, because it's the Spirit who must give life. So remain in your unbelief, you remain in your flesh, and there's no profit to that. Embrace me, believe upon me, turn from your sin, and receive me, And then you will have the Spirit of God and you will have life. 
It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The rest of the verse, and here's the difficulty, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. How are we to understand that? There's two ways, typically, in which that phrase is understood. Either one of these, again, will work with the context and the whole argument of the passage. The first is this, that what Jesus is saying is he is referencing the all of the talk about the eating the flesh and the drinking of the blood, and Jesus is saying to them, what I have said to you that is offensive to you, the blood and the flesh part, what I have said to you is to be taken not in a wooden literal sense of literally eating and drinking literal flesh and blood, but it is to be understood in a spiritual sense. What I have spoken to you, the words that I have spoken to you about eating flesh and drinking blood, are to be understood spiritually, not literally. They are spirit and they are life. They're not to be taken literally, and he's correcting their misunderstanding. It's possible to understand it that way, and many people have. I kind of lean toward a second way of understanding it, and that is that what Jesus is saying is this. Everything I have spoken to you, from verse 26 all the way through the end of his sermon, everything I have said to you, all of that truth contained in that, if you are to be saved, you have to embrace me and my word. If you can, to paraphrase it, he would be saying this, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It is the word of God that the Spirit of God uses to bring life to the people of God. You have been born again to a living hope through the living and enduring word of God. He brings us forth by his word of truth. And that is what I think Jesus is describing to them. He is saying to them, everything I have said to you, all that I have taught you, all the truth that you have heard me say, these words will bring you life if you will embrace them and receive them and believe what I have said is true. You know what the mark or the distinction is between a false disciple and a true disciple? What do they do with the teachings and the words of Jesus? Will they embrace them or will they reject them? That will determine whether somebody is a true disciple or a false disciple. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Reject my word. Reject what I have said. Don't take me at my word. And you demonstrate that you are a false disciple. That is what I think Jesus is saying. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Receive them. You will receive life. Embrace my teaching. Listen to who I am. Listen to what I have said to you. Embrace it as truth. Receive it into yourself. Just like you would food and drink. And you will have life. Without it, you will not have life. If you reject my word, you cannot have eternal life. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now look at his diagnosis in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Can you imagine sitting in that crowd that day? And you got to imagine that there are people in that crowd who are sitting, as some people do, you know, against the back wall. I don't mean anybody in particular here. But in every, every gathering, there are people who are sitting against the back wall, and they're sort of quiet, and they got their hands in their pocket, and they just listen. They're not the mumblers and the grumblers. They're not the people who are complaining. They're not the people who are arguing. They're just the people who listen and take it in. And they're not engaged with debating the speaker in an environment like this that we're just seeing in John 6. They're not interested in engaging it or even talking about it. They just sit quietly, and they listen. There are people like that. There are people there who, without ever uttering it with their mouth, are saying to themselves, I don't believe this. This is nonsense. This is too harsh. This is unacceptable. These demands I am not willing to embrace. I don't want anything to do with this weird teacher and his weird doctrines and his claims upon my life. I will have nothing to do with this. Even though they're sitting there quietly, that's what they're thinking. In any gathering of unbelievers when you preach the gospel, there are going to be people who are thinking that. What this guy says sounds good, but he's a lunatic. He's a weirdo, and I don't embrace any of this stuff, and they're quiet. I want you to imagine that you're one of those people sitting in a crowd like this, and this is a good-sized crowd, and you're listening to what Jesus says, and then he says, as he scans the crowd, there are some of you here who do not believe. 
There are people sitting there thinking to themselves, how does he know that? Does he read my, did he read my mind? Is he reading my eyes? Is there something on my expression that's revealing the condition of my heart? How can he make that statement? Maybe he's talk, thinking about the other people in the room, the people who have openly expressed their unbelief, but certainly he can't possibly know my heart. And yet that statement of their unbelief, it was true at the beginning of the sermon, verse 36, you have seen me and yet you do not believe, you remain in unbelief. He's now given the entire sermon to get to the end of it and he says to them, there are some of you who still remain in unbelief. And there were people in the crowd who, whose heart he has just read. How did he know that? Verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. I want to sort of set that the reference to the betrayal aside for this week. We'll, we'll pick it up next week because it's mentioned again in verse 71, and the betrayer's name is given, Judas Iscariot. So we'll kind of save the significance of that for next, next week. I want you to focus in on the statements of verse 64 and 65. Verse 65 sounds familiar to you, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. That should sound familiar because it's almost a restatement identically of verse 44. Jesus said this in the middle of his sermon, You cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. You are unable. And this is a statement of man's inability. Now he restates it again in verse 65. Again, he is describing again the reason, the purpose, the diagnosis of their unbelief. They lacked the ability in themselves to come apart from the Father granting that they come and then drawing them to the Son. And Jesus is here describing again a limited number of people. It is not everybody whom the Father draws. If the Father drew everybody equally, everybody would come because all that the Father draws are raised up on the last day to eternal life. Verse 44. So this group that is drawn is not everybody. Some people try and sort of dodge the logical conclusion of, and straightforward reading of Jesus' words <clears throat> excuse me, by saying that the, it's true that not everybody that nobody can come without the Father drawing them, but the Father draws everybody so everybody can come. Is that true? Is it true that the Father draws everybody so everybody can come? If that's true, then the verse doesn't mean anything. He's not explaining their unbelief if that's what it means. Because he would be saying to them, you can come. But that's not what he says. You can't come. Why? Because the Father has not granted that you come. Their unbelief didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew from the beginning who it was that would believe upon him. That's an amazing statement, verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would believe on him. Let me ask you this. What beginning? From the beginning of what? From the beginning of what? What beginning was it that Jesus knew who it was that was going to believe on him? Some people say, well, it's from the beginning of this sermon. I see he already knew from the beginning of the sermon who it was that was going to believe on him. He already had a good idea of who in the crowd. I mean, he could read the crowd. He could read the crowd well. He was like a, a, a modern-day carnival barker, able to sort of read the crowd and know who the suckers were and who was able more able to respond to him. Some people say, well, he knew from the beginning of his ministry, when the Spirit of God came upon him and he was baptized. That's when he knew from that beginning. What beginning is John describing? There's nothing in the context that limits the beginning to the beginning of his message, or to the beginning of his ministry, or the beginning of his arrival in Capernaum, or even the beginning of his incarnation. What beginning is John describing in verse 64? I think it's the same beginning he described back at the beginning of his gospel when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He was fully God. And here is John's statement of his omniscience. He knew 
from the very beginning who it was who would reject him and who would believe upon him. He could look out over this crowd of people and listen, he knows his sheep. And he knew them from when? From the very beginning. Before the beginning of this sermon, before his incarnation, before creation, before the creation of a single angel, he knew those who were his. Why? The Father had given to him a people and he knows his own and he knows them from eternity past. He could look at this crowd. He knew who it was who would believe and he knew who it was that would reject him. And when he chose Judas, he knew Judas would be the betrayer. That's why he chose Judas. He grabbed Judas and he selected Judas and he included Judas in the twelve. And he knew from the very beginning of time, before the beginning of time, from as far back as your human mind can go in eternity past, he knew his own. He knows his own. He knew you and he knows me. And he knows before he ever created anything who were his, who would believe, and who would not believe. And he knows all of that infallibly. Not because he's a good prognosticator, not because he's a good fortune teller, but because he has decreed it. Because the Father said to the Son, here's a people. Son, save them. And Jesus said, gladly, Father. I will take them. I will embrace them. I will save them. I will raise them up on the last day. And he knows from eternity past those who are his. He knew it. He knew in John 1, he knew Andrew before Andrew ever met him. He knew who the disciples were. He knew which disciples would believe upon him. He knew that Nicodemus would later believe upon him because Nicodemus was one of his. He knew the woman at the well belonged to him and he had to go into Samaria to save her. He knew the people in Samaria would embrace him and receive him. He knew that the, the nobleman and his son would embrace him and receive him. And he knew who would not reject, or would not believe and who would reject him. He knew that in John 5 that the Jews would not believe upon him. He knew in John 6 that these hostile, this hostile crowd would not believe upon him. He could look over the crowd and he knew who his sheep were. And he could call them out and he could indicate them. And he knew this from when? From the beginning. Listen, friend, take, take solace and comfort in this. Before you were ever created or before anything was ever created, the Father knew you, the Son knew you, and the Spirit knew you, and he knew you would believe. Because the Father gave you to the Son. And that, as we have seen in this whole discourse, is the reason and the ground of our security in Christ. He gave you to His Son. And Jesus knew from the beginning those who were His. And He knew from the beginning who would not believe. That is a precious truth. And He also knew who would betray Him. And we'll save the significance of that betrayal and that mention of that betrayal for next week. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. In Christ and all that you have given to us in Him, we thank you that you knew us before the foundation of the world, that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you, O Father, gave us to your Son. And again, we are reminded of our total inability to do anything which is pleasing to you or honoring to you or meritorious of eternal life. It all rests upon your grace, your sovereign and good grace, and what you have done in Christ to secure our salvation. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for knowing us. And thank you for calling us into a relationship with you. You are to be glorified and honored and you alone for all the glory for our salvation rests and belongs to our great triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who purposed and planned it before anything was created way in eternity past. Thank you for such a marvelous grace and thank you for granting it to us in Christ from all eternity. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.